Okay, good evening everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And I'd like to welcome you all um, on behalf both of the Miliband program and the Department of Sociology here who are jointly organising today's event. Um, this academic year is not just the centenary of the Russian Revolution, a topic that we're going to be talking about next term if you're interested, but it's also the 50th anniversary of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. As I'm sure you know, an extraordinary upheaval that's central to understanding the shaping of a society which is increasingly shaping all our worlds and is certainly central to the personal experience of many of the people who currently rule that society. To speak about that today, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Professor Andrew Walder, one of the leading experts and authorities in this area. Professor Walder is Professor of Sociology at Stanford University, where he's also a senior fellow in the Institute for International Studies, and he's previously taught at Columbia and Harvard University and also at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He's published an enormous string of books and articles on the political sociology of communism and modern China in particular. Indeed, um, it's always a bit invidious, but I think I counted nine books and over a hundred articles. Um, and you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to start listing them tonight. But I do want to mention just the most recent two monographs that he's published. One, Fractured Rebellion, the Beijing Red Guards Movement, which won the American Sociological Association's Barrington Moore Award, and his most recent book, China Under Mao, A Revolution Derailed, which is just out in paperback tomorrow. But if you want to get in quickly, it's out there before, and I believe afterwards you'll stay here if, um, if people yes. want to yes. sign copies. So the paperback issue, we've got it a day early out, the, out, out there in the lobby. It's a tremendous book. Um, I've read it myself. It's a, it's a wonderful mix, actually, of erudition and accessibility, um, something which uh, scholars would do well to emulate. Well, um, Andrew will be uh, drawing on those works for his talk. He's going to be talking for about 50 minutes, and then we should have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. But before he does, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Andrew Walder. Thank you very much, Robin, um, and thank you also for plugging my book and um, relieving me of the responsibility of doing it myself. Uh, I'm tr I have a PowerPoint here, and I'm not sure. There it is. Okay. Uh, and this uh, talk really is, is a greatly reduced abstract of the last half of this book, again, which just happens to be available <laughs> out in the foyer. Uh, I want to do... Um, five things, address five topics uh, in a very sketchy outline form. The first uh, is what was the culture revolution, just to remind you all. Um, second, and this is important, why did Mao launch it? Third, how much of Mao's aims was he able to accomplish in the course of this period of time, period of upheaval? And in what ways, given Mao's aims for this campaign, were the outcomes unexpected and unwanted. One of the major themes 
of this book is that many of the things that occurred during this tumultuous period were things that Mao had not anticipated, and there were a series of outcomes that he did not actually want. Um, And finally, uh, at the end, I'd like to address the question of the human costs uh, and what, in the end, was the long-term impact of this period of Chinese history, and what difference did the Cultural Revolution make to the long-run trajectory of China. So, first, the first question, what was the Cultural Revolution? Well, the official definition of the Chinese Communist Party when it summarized this uh, period of history in a resolution on party history in 1981 was that it was 10 years of chaos from 1966 to 1976. This surprised a number of Western scholars who had already been doing research on the Cultural Revolution for eight years or so, and they had assumed that the Cultural Revolution ended when the army put down the Red Garden rebel movements in 1968. But gradually, over time, this 10-year definition has come to be accepted. Now, this 10-year period uh, can be broken down into four distinct phases, and they correspond to four chapters uh, in in this book. The first runs from mid-1966 to January of 1967, which saw the free mobilization of student and worker rebel groups who attacked authority figures throughout China uh, and formed Red Guard and rebel factions. Students and workers traveled freely around the country, published their own newspapers, wrote their own editorials, invaded government offices, took officials and put them on, uh, on the stage in mass rallies and humiliated them. The second phase runs from January 1967 to the middle of 1968. And this, was began, this began with a wave of power seizures that overthrew, civil, overthrew civilian governments across China, which led to armed factional battles between rebel factions. And they pitted rebel groups that had seized power against those rebel groups who had been excluded from power seizures. And that is what drove the major struggles throughout 1967 and into 1968. The third phase stretched from mid-1968 to the end of 1971. This was began with the suppression of the mass insurgency by military force and the creation of revolutionary committees largely under military rule. China was basically, except for major cities like Shanghai and Beijing, was under a form of martial law during this period. And the fourth and final period, which begins in 1972 and leads up to Mao's death and then the arrest of the figures known, that became known as the Gang of Four in October of 1976, was a period of conflicts over the restoration of the previous status quo and renewed factional strife between Maoist radicals, veteran officials, and also a nascent protest movement against Maoist radicals and the seeds of a modern democracy movement in China. The official party judgment of this 10 years is, and here I paraphrase the the 1981 document, the Cultural Revolution was the worst catastrophe suffered by the Chinese people since the establishment of the state in 1949. It was conceived, led, and directed by Chairman Mao. So, Why did Mao launch it? Why did Mao do all this? Some recent and highly critical biographies of Mao essentially attribute this to Mao's warped and duplicitous personality. He's vain, suspicious, paranoid, megalomaniac, power-hungry. 
I view Mao differently. He was a committed ideologue, and I want to explain the ideas that led him in the, in, the, in the firm political commitments that led him to this big gamble. He believed deeply in two things that distinguish him from most other communist leaders in the 20th century. The first is that class struggle and non-economic development drives history forward and is the source of human progress, and class struggle is necessarily violent. Reform does not work to break the power of exploiting classes. It's necessary to use force, Humiliate and violence and death are necessary collateral damage. This, of course, is at least a rhetorical commitment of many Marxist revolutionaries, but Mao expressed this clearly as a young revolutionary in several essays in which he argued that rebellion by peasants was the only way that the Chinese revolution could succeed and that communists must not shrink back from violent excesses that this often entails. The second idea, and this is crucial, Class struggle continues under socialism even after you've removed the economic basis for class inequality under capitalism. This is often misunderstood. My entire generation of students misunderstood this as Mao's uniquely original idea, but actually it was Stalin's in the late 1930s, and it was a rationale for Stalin's great purges. Mao absorbed this lesson in the late 1930s in the communist base area of Yan'an, when he studied Soviet textbooks from the Stalin era and sought to remake himself into a theoretician and a political leader in the mold of Stalin himself. What's unique about Mao is that he acted on this uh, by mobilizing popular rebellion against the uh, political system that he himself led and had set up. No other leader in the history of 20th, 20th century communism, and certainly not Stalin, ever mobilized a mass insurgency to attack the power structures over which he himself presided. This was a huge gamble and really quite a remarkable move on his part. Why the free mobilization of an insurgency that began with students, spread to workers, and eventually included white-collar staff and even large numbers of collective farmers? Mao is explicit about this and, in a certain way, entirely consistent both intellectually and politically. He saw the entire communist movement, led by the powerful and prestigious Soviet Union, develop into a bureaucratic hierarchy that was increasingly tending towards the use of career incentives and material privileges, placing people with technical skills and higher educations at the top of a social hierarchy. And this, in his mind, was degenerating into a stable status quo power that equated economic growth Uh, with progress of the revolution. Mao saw these tendencies in his own party and in the thinking of many senior leaders. He recognized this correctly, I think, uh, that almost none of the other leaders, especially people like Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, uh, none of them shared his vision of how to move China forward through constant struggle. Uh, And none of them, I think, fully shared his view that the Soviet Union was degenerating into a class-divided uh, class society. Mao saw China moving in a similar direction, with a new generation of party members motivated primarily by career incentives and moving up a new bureaucratic ladder of prestige and status. Mao's purpose in this audacious step of mobilizing a national rebellion against his own power structure 
to give an, was to give an entire generation of younger Chinese the experience of challenging authority to shake up the power and privilege and status of bureaucrats, primarily through putting them through humiliating struggle sessions, and giving young rebels the kind of revolutionary experience that Mao's own generation had, uh, and thereby halt or at least delay the tendency toward bureaucratic hierarchy, to keep the revolutionary spirit alive, and to beat back the tendency of socialist states to degenerate into yet another form of inequality, privilege, and class oppression. At the core of Mao's insight, however, was, I think, uh, a flawed notion. He saw this as a revival of capitalism. He saw the privileged group that was rising in the Soviet Union as a capitalist class. Had Marx studied Weber in Yan'an instead of Stalin, he would have seen, I think, that this is an inevitable consequence of a bureaucratic system with a single political hierarchy and an economy that's run like a bureaucracy. But I digress. So, how much, how much of Mao's aims was he able to accomplish? He accomplished quite a number of things, especially in the short term, that really are quite remarkable. First of all, he was able to mobilize a powerful nationwide rebellion that lasted for almost two years. He was able to destabilize the political system and essentially cause the collapse of the civilian structure of party government over most of China. He was able to establish a new form of local government called a revolutionary committee, which was composed of military officers, selected rebel leaders, and surviving veteran officials who had passed the political test of the Cultural Revolution. This was a new form of government that downsized the bureaucracy and denigrated the prestige and privilege that came from having expertise and a higher education. Um, the Chinese Communist Party didn't operate from 1967 until the early 1970s. It was replaced by this uh, ad hoc structure of power. Most of the conflicts of the middle of the 1970s were about the rebuilding of the party organization itself. And one of the things that distinguishes the period after Mao from the Soviet Union under Gorbachev is that China was still rebuilding its party state, which had been destroyed in many ways in the 1960s. And Mao was able, temporarily at least, to destroy the prestige of those with power and education sending almost all officials and educated people to rural camps, at least temporarily, where they engaged in manual labor or worked on factory floors uh, to remold their thinking and to be presumably educated by ordinary workers and farmers. So Mao was able to accomplish these things. Uh, but, but what went wrong in Mao's terms? And these things have become increasingly clear as research on new documentation of the Cultural Revolution has progressed over the last 10 or 15 years. By any standard, and especially by Mao's own standards, he failed to accomplish what he had hoped and caused enormous collateral damage to his country, leaving it at the time of his death politically divided, very poor, uh, and weak. The Communist Party was riven by factional conflicts at the time of his death in 1976, Government structures were weak and poorly organized. They had yet to be rebuilt. The industrialization drive had stalled. There was still extreme rural poverty in around 20 to 25 percent of China. 
Urban living standards had stagnated and in some respects had regressed since 1956. The university system was primitive and backward. Science and technology was decades behind world standards. China had fallen behind virtually every country that they had aspired to surpass uh, when they established the new Chinese state in the 1950s. And looking back at this period, uh, China was compared today backward and weak and had fulfilled very few of the aspirations of the new revolutionary regime of the 1950s. Despite its rapid rise and remarkable economic success over the last 30 plus years, China today is not the China that Mao wanted to achieve. I think he would have been proud of the power and prosperity in China, but it was exactly the kind of country that he did not want to be created. So what went wrong uh, in terms of Mao's aims during the course of the Cultural Revolution itself? I just looked at it from uh, a long-term view. But if you looked at what happened step by step during the, these four phases of the Cultural Revolution decade, you'll see that at each point uh, in time, Mao encountered developments that he thought were really quite counter to what he wanted to do, and he made up a new direction. He moved in a new direction and continued to encounter unexpected and unwanted outcomes. And through time, if you look at the choices he made, he seemed to be running out of, of, of favorable uh, choices and ended up settling for perhaps his fourth or fifth uh, option, which was to put China under military control. Let's start with the mobilization of the Student Red Guard movement. Here I'm moving over a very um, complicated story very quickly. Students constantly divided into factions and fought one another from the very beginning of the Red Guard movement. Initially, they argued over family heritage. Students from which kinds of families deserve to lead the uh, Red Guard movement? Was it the descendants of the revolutionaries that founded the new state? Was it descendants of the working class? Uh, people who were edu uh, educated and who were children of uh, former middle classes, were, were they qualified to be Red Guards? They argued about this from the very beginning. They also argued over the violence uh, exercised by the early Red Guard movement. The official, according to the official uh, uh, numbers, 1,700 people were beaten to death by Red Guards in, in the capital alone in August and September of 1966. There was a strong wing of the Red Guard movement that denounced this uh, and, and fought against it, and they fought against students who didn't want their revolutionary uh, rebellion to be restrained by worries about violence. Uh, some of the Red Guards ended up rebelling against the uh, younger officials that Mao had used to mobilize the Red Guard movement, and in turn they were suppressed. Uh, and one faction, a rebel faction, was anointed as the correct faction, and as soon as they won, they in turn split into two factions and fought one another until the end of the Cultural Revolution. So by December of 1966, Mao had decided that the students were not going to get the job done. And he decided to turn to, to the working class. And after a, an argument among the top leaders uh, about whether or not the workers should be permitted to form their own rebel groups and participate in this campaign, Mao gave them the green light and they went forward. No sooner had they done so than uh, they 
themselves split into factions, but they also did something that was even more disturbing. They had a habit of demanding better pay, working conditions, housing, and benefits, something that Mao did not want. He did not want to create a free trade union movement. Zhou Enlai and other leaders had argued strongly that workers not be permitted to rebel, but Mao ignored them. Within weeks, fighting among worker factions completely paralyzed major cities like Shanghai and Nanjing, threatening to completely undermine the planned economy. Now, if we think about the impact of street fighting on an economy, that's much less of a problem in a market economy than it is in the centrally planned economies like China's. But if government officials, government planning agencies can't operate, goods and services don't get moved around. So Zhou Enlai and other leaders were panicked about the impact of rebel invasions of offices. Uh, the public transportation system, public utilities, public order would be completely undermined by this kind of activity in a way that would not be the case uh, in a market economy. So the, the, the next um, move that Mao made was to have rebel groups seize power, restore order, uh, and keep the economy going. In early January 1967, Maoist radicals from Beijing, two of whom would later become uh, members of the infamous Gang of Four, returned to Shanghai to lead a power seizure that overthrew the party officials in partnership with a very large worker rebel alliance. Uh, this was not welcomed by all rebels. The student movement was completely left out and they immediately rebelled against the power seizure as well as one wing of the rebel movement. But because this power seizure had the support of Mao and the Beijing radicals, uh, the army was permitted to arrest those who uh, objected. So this was now the ideal endpoint, a power seizure in the, in the name of Mao loyalists in concert with mobilized masses. Uh, the Cultural Revolution would therefore be over. It would have reached a victorious, uh, victorious end. On January 26, uh, 22nd of 1967, editorials went out from Beijing, relayed across radio all across China down to the county level, urging rebels to seize power, not just rebel, but to seize power. And that touched off a wave of power seizures, which we now know uh, occurred in 90% of all city and county governments across China by the end of March 1967. But there were problems. Mao and his loyalists in Beijing had to confer legitimacy on power seizures before they could consolidate control and put down their opponents, because in every power seizure, there was one wing of the rebel movement that was left out, as I mentioned before. The situation in all but five of the 30-some Chinese provinces was too confusing for them to give their approval. Either they could not identify a leader sufficiently senior and trustworthy and sufficiently loyal to Mao's vision to head a new government, as in Shanghai, or large rebel movements were already deeply divided over their relative roles in the new power arrangements. Uh, and so Mao and his colleagues in most, for most regions of China could not decide which side to support. And so they had to move to a second option, which was to place these uh, regions under military control. This simply thrust the army into the midst of factional warfare among workers and student rebels. And there was a dynamic in Beijing that um, undermined the ability to sort things out, and that was that Zhou Enlai, was, who was basically running the Cultural Revolution power machine in Beijing, 
uh, was very much in favor of restoring order, but the Maoist radicals uh, who had launched the Cultural Revolution and who felt that Zhou Enlai was a very dangerous rival felt that he was simply restoring order in order to end the Cultural Revolution. So there were arguments in Beijing that constantly shifted the support that the army had in trying to restore order uh, in selecting political winners and losers in localities. And this led to wavering about the role of the army throughout 1967 and 1968. Initially, uh, in late January, the armed forces were given the leeway to enforce order. They were told to intervene and support the left to suppress and to suppress reactionary groups, left undefined. And they did so, siding with one rebel faction against another, which they typically dealt with by arresting leaders and banning contrary rebel organizations. But then Mao and his followers in Beijing became worried by March of 1967 that they were simply suppressing his mass movement. And in April, they were forced to release rebel leaders and restore their organizations. But now these liberated rebels were dedicated anti-army activists, and they renewed their fight against rebels who had seized power and had excluded them. There was a massive upsurge by the summer of 1967. <clears throat> Armed factions fought in the streets, disrupting local economies, much more severely than anything seen in late December 1966 or January of 1967, even in cities like Shanghai. And the army was no longer permitted to use force to enforce order. Uh, and the, by official estimates, close to a quarter million deaths of these armed factional struggles occurred during this period. Finally, um, unable to sort out these deeply divided political rivalries, Mao decided near the end of 1967 that he really had no option but to lean heavily on the armed forces. Um, he concluded, and I think correctly, that he could never use the propaganda apparatus to get these deeply divided local rebel forces uh, to unite uh, and bury the hatchet. Um, whatever rebel leaders thought, the armed forces were firmly in charge in these new revolutionary committees that were created uh, by the army. Except for a few regions like Shanghai and Beijing, most of China was essentially under a form of martial law. Uh, and the army proceeded to carry out a series of persecution campaigns beginning in 1968, reaching their height in 1969, that were unprecedented in scale and scope. And radical initiatives that we associate with the Cultural Revolution, sending of students to the countryside, the closing of universities, uh, the sending of office workers down to rural camps for manual labor, these things all were implemented during this period. So in 1969, April of 1969, um, Mao convened the first party congress in a very long time. And this was to declare the victory of the Cultural Revolution. And throughout this period, Mao acted as if everything was going according to some higher plan, when in reality he was constantly forced into unanticipated situations that required him to change course. This aura of authority was exploded in September 1971. Mao realized that the army had enormous power, and he himself had become highly dependent on military commanders and was potentially vulnerable. Uh, he had de designated Marshal Lin Biao and his, as his number two and successor back at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, 
and he had begun to make his moves to push back against the Army's power in 1969. Whatever the reality behind the scenes in this power struggle, Lin Biao died in an airplane crash uh, in Mongolia. The official story was that he was actually a traitor, that he had attempted a military coup and an assassination of Chairman Mao himself. The story was it failed, and Lin Biao died uh, when his plane crashed due to insufficient fuel while fleeing uh, as a traitor to the Soviet Union. This exploded the entire political rationale for the Cultural Revolution and led to a campaign to criticize the abuses of the Cultural Revolution in the guise of criticizing Lin Biao. So in 1972, there was a campaign that criticized the violence and the abuse of power in the Cultural Revolution as something that Lin Biao had been responsible for. Uh, Mao turned during this period to Zhou Enlai and eventually to Deng Xiaoping to try to pull China back together, to try to restore the party organization. But this only led to rivalry between veteran officials like Deng Xiaoping and others throughout the country who were gradually being returned to positions of authority that they had lost earlier, and radical officials on the other hand, and rebel leaders who wanted to preserve what they called the positive accomplishments of the Cultural Revolution. There were huge debates about restoring universities, for example, which was a very big uh, issue uh, during this period. This led, by the end of Mao's life, to street protests that expressed strong popular disapproval of Cultural Revolution policies and criticisms of the individuals who later became known as the Gang of Four and indirect criticisms not only of Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, but of Mao himself. Uh, the, the famous first Tiananmen incident of April 1976 was the most famous of these, but there were even larger protests and more sustained protests in the city of Nanjing the week before. The final, uh, the final uh, twist and turn in this story, where things did not turn out the way that Mao had anticipated or wanted, was a succession problem. Mao appointed a relatively unknown figure named Hua Guofeng uh, as a, a centrist to balance moderate and radical leaders and keep the tension between cultural revolution ideals and more pragmatic desires to restore the system and improve the economy. It didn't work. Hua Guofeng arrested the radicals on his own initiative less than one month after Mao's funeral. So in sum, Mao's initiatives consistently backfired, leading to unintended outcomes. None of these outcomes can be construed as things that Mao would have wanted. By his own terms, Mao was not particularly successful, and he appears to have realized this near the end of his life. In the summer of 1976, while talking to his designated successor, Hua Guofeng, he reportedly said, I have accomplished two things in my life. First, I fought Chiang Kai-shek for a few decades and drove him to a few islands. After eight years of war against the Japanese, they were sent home. We fought our way to Beijing, at last entering the Forbidden City. There are not many people who do not recognize these achievements. The other matter you all know about, it was to launch the Cultural Revolution. On this matter, few support it, many oppose it. But it is not finished, and its legacy must be handed down to the next generation. How to do this? If not in peace, then in turmoil. Only heaven knows how you're going to handle it. Of course, Wagofeng handled it by arresting 
uh, the remaining Maoist radicals who were dedicated to the Cultural Revolution. Well, let's back up uh, and look at the long-run impact and try to gauge the human costs of, of this episode. Uh, in the economy, in some respects, by the end of Mao's life, China exhibited the hallmarks of successful economic development. The crude death rate was uh, 25 per thousand. It had, had declined from 25 per thousand to 7.8 per thousand. Infant mortality was 45 per thousand. Life expectancy was 64 years. These figures are similar to economies at much higher levels of development. Uh, but economic development was still very modest by other measures. Overall growth rate during the entire uh, period after 1949 had only been 2.9% annually, which is in the middle of Asia. There were wildly fluctuating growth rates uh, due to political upheaval. Uh, this is the annual change in GDP per capita uh, in the last 10 years are the ones we should be paying attention to, and you see a drop in 60, 67 and 68 before rising back up again, but the economy, the growth rates were starting to decline uh, even, even, before, um, even before Mao's death. Uh, there were deepening signs of industrial and agricultural stagnation. There was a huge bias towards heavy industrial investment and massive overinvestment in heavy industry at the expense of living standards. There was gross, grossly inefficient use of capital investment in industry in low and declining Productivity. So these are pr productivity trends in, in industry. Basically, everything above the number one means that you're getting more out of uh, industry than you're investing in it in terms of value. And you can see that not until 1966, uh, in the recovery from the Great Leap Forward, 1962 to 1966, did they begin to have something that looked like a level of efficiency that would lead to self-sustaining economic growth that crashed during the two years of upheaval it rose again under the army, but then again, it was steadily declining in the 1970s, which meant there was something wrong with the fundamental uh, mechanisms of the economy. Uh, there was a population explosion. Uh, the population had doubled, continued to rise, which suppressed average living standards. China's GDP per capita, we, we think of China as an economic titan. We've become used to this. China's GDP per capita adjusted for purchasing power parity at the time of Mao's death was 163 U.S. dollars per year. Bangladesh was 140 U.S. dollars per year. By contrast, South Korea was 824 dollars. Japan was 5,100 dollars. If you look at trend lines, China was falling behind all, all of its peer competitors, but also many of the, um, many of the poorest uh, countries uh, in its region. Uh, the dotted line, of course, is Japan, which had surpassed the Soviet Union uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, but China, China's trajectory, which is upward, is barely discernible when you scale it against these other countries during these periods. And you notice that China's falling behind. Here's when the Cultural Revolution begins. And that's when all of Japan in particular, but also uh, the other countries, really began their economic takeoff. So China's falling further behind. And if you track China's, this is really quite revealing, if you track China's progress relative to India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, the, obviously the data before 1970 
uh, was for East Pakistan. The solid line is China, and you can see the impact of political upheavals uh, and policy uh, mistakes in China. China was much poorer in terms of GDP per capita in 1950 than any of these other countries. Notice how China uh, caught up very quickly with India and Pakistan by 1957. The Great Leap Forward led to a big crash. China ended up going down to the level of East Pakistan. Recovered again uh, by 1966, the year the Cultural Revolution began, China had caught up once again with Pakistan uh, and India, fell further behind. And by the time uh, Mao died, China had still barely crawled back to the same level uh, as, as India. This was not the level of, uh, uh, this is not the level of accomplishment that China's leaders had hoped for when they adopted the Soviet model. And you can see it certainly wasn't the trajectory they would have hoped to have continued, the one that they had in the 1950s, before Mao began to intervene heavily in economic policy. Um, um, this had an impact on living standards. Um, housing space was shrinking in urban areas. Average industrial wages declined 20% after 1964. These are um, official statistics. In urban China, rationing was pervasive, vigilant shopping, and aggressive use of connections to get scarce, uh, to get scarce commodities was rife. One of the things that most shocked idealistic Westerners who went to China uh, in the early post-Mao years, and even in the, in the late, post, late Mao years, was that they discovered that uh, people were actually deeply, deeply interested in maneuvering to uh, obtain material goods that were generally unavailable. Uh, most urban families lived in, many urban families lived in single rooms, shared kitchens, uh, did not have bathrooms uh, or shower facilities in their apartments. The service sector was wretched. Anyone who's been to a public restaurant during this period knows what I'm talking about. Uh, now, let's look at a more uncomfortable question, which is um, the human cost. Now, um, published estimates of the number of people who died as a result of these the upheavals of these 10 years, primarily the first two or three years, are, are wild, usually wild speculations. They range from 400,000 to 8 million. A lot of the textbooks that people in China read in high school will only say at most 40,000 people. And this comes from the trial of the Gang of Four, where the eight figures who were on, on trial, the figures who were on trial in that uh, uh, political show trial, uh, were said to have personally persecuted 40,000 people to death. The, the published estimates range from 400,000 to 8 million. I won't go through the method or describe it in, in great detail, but uh, I've published um, my own estimate based on reading of published and unpublished local data. Uh, and I came up with an upper bound estimate of 1.6 million several years ago. Um, the, um, I subsequently came across um, a report in an obscure Hong Kong magazine that there was a, um, an estimate commissioned by the Central Committee in the 1980s of 1.7 million, which makes me relatively confident that this is a fairly a good ballpark number. Uh, beyond this, according to this reported Central Committee report, in my own estimates, at least 40 million people were severely affected 
through political accusations. They were sent to the countryside, lost their jobs, were imprisoned, arrested, and so forth. These casualties were the result of a movement that uh, really had not accomplished much, had not really done much to advance China. So how do you evaluate the Cultural Revolution in a comparative perspective? Now, if you put it, this arrays uh, a series of roughly similar incidents. Um, I excluded um, warfare, open warfare, interstate warfare. Um, and if you array in terms of just total numbers, uh, the only case that surpasses China is Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. Uh, great purges in the USSR, even though they've opened up the archives, there's still a lot of debate among Soviet specialists as to what the real number is. Uh, the massacres in Rwanda, we have a fairly good sense that it was around 800,000. Indonesia, there's still um, the 1965 massacres of suspected communists and ethnic Chinese. Uh, there's still a great deal of controversy. That's the range. I like to put in, I always like to put in something that the United States did. Um, I had to go all the way back to the turn of the 20th century to get a, a counterinsurgency campaign that kind of fit into this. Uh, Bosnia, obviously, and, uh, uh, this was a, a study by a Norwegian uh, group that was fairly well documented. Uh, the Guatemala counterinsurgency campaign, which was very ugly uh, in the 1980s. And I put this in here for just, just to put the nationalists in there as well. There was a, a nationalist army massacre in February 19, 1947. Uh, the estimates are 10 to 20,000 people. Now, how do we evaluate these numbers? I would argue that if you're looking at, you're trying to estimate how ferocious or how intense the persecutions were, or the damage, you have to normalize these numbers by the populations that were exposed to risk. If you do that, uh, the position of the Cultural Revolution changes quite a bit. Cambodia, under the Khmer Rouge, one-fifth of the population was killed. Uh, Rwanda, 13 percent. Um, Philippines, the U.S. Army's counterinsurgency campaign, 2.8 percent, which is roughly the same as Bosnia in the 90s. Uh, the Great Purges in the U.S. Sorry, you're now getting into the per thousand, something like five to 7.4 per thousand. Indonesia, roughly the same range. Guatemala. What's interesting is that the Cultural Revolution is sort of the midpoint of this one episode uh, in Taiwan. So I'm not saying this was, in Mao's term, a tea party. But what I am saying that if you've, I've heard rhetoric that not only was Mao one of the biggest mass murders of the 20th century, uh, but I've heard terms like Holocaust or Great Terror applied to this period. And if you look at local cases, that might seem to be the case. Uh, but in terms of demographics, um, it, it was not anywhere near as severe as many of these other cases. So um, how do you evaluate Mao and the Cultural Revolution? Uh, in the late, shortly after Mao's death, there were discussions uh, in, uh, there were, oh, let me, I'm sorry. Let me, let me just cement this point, okay. If the death rate in China had been the same as in Rwanda, 95 million people would have been killed, not 1.7. Uh, if it was the same as Bosnia, 18 million people. Indonesia, 2.7 to 5.6. So in other words, the death rate in China, the intensity of violence in this episode, only accumulates to large numbers because of the 750 million people who were living in China during this period. Now. Um, 
moving to an overall evaluation. Uh, in the late 1970s, after Mao died, there was a lot, lot of discussion uh, among China's leaders about, well, how do, we, how do we talk about Mao? How do we talk about the history of our movement? How do we assess this, this fellow? And they had something of a hot potato in their hands. Um, one of my favorite quotes was by an official named Chen Yun, who became one of the architects of China's reforms and had been consistently sidelined by Mao because he had always argued that China, need to fo- China needed to focus on carefully planned, steady economic development. He was not a Maoist at all. Uh, but he came back in the 1970s and 80s and was a major figure uh, in Chinese politics then. To quote him, Um, Had Chairman Mao died in 1956, there would have been no doubt that he was a great leader of the Chinese people, a respected, loved, and outstanding great man in the proletarian revolutionary movement of the world. Had he died in 1966, his meritorious achievements would have been somewhat tarnished, but still very good. By this he meant the Great Leap Forward. Since he actually died in 1976, there's nothing we can do about it. I don't, know, I don't know how else you can handle, handle it. Uh, what about the final? Did, so so were, were these 10 years totally wasted? Were they just, did they have no negative or positive impact at all? Or did China just recover afterwards and forgot about this? Uh, what in the long run, what difference did the Cultural Revolution make? And I'd like to argue it had an enormous impact on the course of Chinese history. Not the one that Mao had intended but one that made it very possible for a leader like Deng Xiaoping to carry out the policies that, uh, that he did and to have the results that he was able to accomplish. Mao obviously did not succeed in having his preferred policies survive his death. In fact, China turned in a sharply different direction uh, very shortly after he died. But I think it's very clear in retrospect, if we compare China's trajectory under Deng Xiaoping with that of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev, that the Cultural Revolution helped ensure the survival of the Communist Party of China and facilitate its final turn away successfully from Soviet-style central planning and create a new economic model that's proven highly successful for more than 30 years. First of all, Remember that the Cultural Revolution destroyed the powerful bureaucracies that would have otherwise blocked efforts to introduce market reform. These are the forces that stood in the way of Gorbachev in the USSR when he first announced his perestroika, leading him to gamble on opening up the Soviet Union's political system, which led to the disorders that eventually overthrew the Soviet Union. Second, the Cultural Revolution, by destroying the central planning bureaucracies, left regions and localities to organize their own economies based on self-reliance. This made them highly receptive to market opportunities and to to the initial move to private enterprise. Third, Mao initially purged Deng Xiaoping, but brought him back in the early 1970s to revive China's economy and rebuild a weakened civilian government only to purge him once again in early 1976 for going too far. This made him a veteran senior official, a a symbol for China's post-Mao leaders, who was a a member of the revolutionary generation. He was at the top of the leadership by the end of 1978. Deng Xiaoping had worked in the central government since 1954. 
He had been general secretary of the Communist Party for over a decade before the Cultural Revolution. He could now bundle together a political package that put together the rebuilding of the party and state bureaucracy along with the move to market reform as a program of national recovery and self-strengthening. This was not an option that was open to Gorbachev. Gorbachev, by contrast, was the youngest member of the Soviet leadership by far. He'd only worked in Moscow for several years previously to assuming the top post. And the USSR was not a country that was just recovering from the damages of a 10-year cultural revolution. The USSR was a superpower uh, in the world's second largest economy, and it had a very impressive university and science and technology system. Gorbachev could not bring the Soviet bureaucracy along with his plans for opening up the old planning system. And while the USSR had problems, they were nowhere near as severe as China's, thanks to the Cultural Revolution. Finally, and I haven't mentioned this, but in the early 1970s, Mao decided uh, the hostility with the Soviet Union had grown so severe uh, that there were border clashes uh, on the Sino-Soviet border. Mao had an analysis of the world situation, and he decided that the Soviet Union was likely to be the leading world power over the next two decades. The United States, which was humbled in Vietnam, was withdrawing from active international engagement and was a declining, weakening power. So Mao decided that China should align itself with the United States and with the West. Uh, After 1973, um, essentially, after Nixon's visit and the visit of several other Western leaders and Japanese leaders, this made the West and Japan eager to assist China's post-Mao reforms with investment, technology transfer, loans, higher education, and other forms of assistance to wean it away from communism. This was eagerly accepted by Deng's China, and it was a huge boost to the first phases of reform and opening in China, something actually that's often forgotten uh, in China today. So in the end, how did the Cultural Revolution alter the long arc of Chinese history? Uh, In conclusion, not in the way that Mao had intended, and the outcomes were surely beyond his imagining or our own imagining. Well, thank you very much. Um, We've got a good chunk of time now for questions. Um, Let me just start by seeing who would like to start us off. Yes, the gentleman at the back. Could you just um, wait for the microphone and just say who you are and um, where you're from? Um, hello, uh, my name is Daniel. I'm a PhD student at SOAS. Um, I have two questions. Um, the first one um, is regarding the role of the military. Um, I don't know if you mentioned it in your book as well, but there is the argument that uh, when we look at the victims um, of the suppression um, beginning in '67, as you pointed out, um, a lot of those victim- victims actually came from factional fights, um, not only within different rebel groups, but also within the army. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you whether you could talk a little bit more about um, factional fights within the army. And the second question um, is um, 
whether you can talk a little bit more about the current role and meaning of the discourse on the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, because if we look, for example, um, at the um, case of Bo Xilai, um, to just name one, or the so-called new left, um, then it strikes me that, um, I'm speaking Chinese as well, it, it strikes me that sort of the Cultural Revolution is sort of used up until today, um, very often in sort of political fights as to refer to something which we should sort of um, not think about in terms of reform or whatever, um, that, which was the case with Wen Jiabao talking about Bo Xilai, for example. Um, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit more about okay. the actual role. Thank should you. I, should I answer yes. each? Series? Those are two very good questions. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, um, you asked about the military and uh, the, the damage due to military factionalism. Actually, uh, the article that I mentioned where I tried to estimate a total number of people who suffered unnatural deaths, as they called it, um, estimated, uh, looked both at um, <clears throat> using local histories, basically collating figures from more than 2,000 local histories in China. I tried to identify both the periods during which people died and the causes, the kind of act, act, um, kinds of events that caused their deaths. And when you said military, I wanted, I wanted to, that sparked this response, which is most of the people who died, the vast majority died after revolutionary committees were formed in locality, which meant that it was under the military. Okay? Most of what we, when we think of the Cultural Revolution, when people in China think of the Cultural Revolution, they think of students beating teachers, and they think of workers, armed workers, fighting one another in the streets. Uh, but that's... That's only about 25% of the total reportable uh, deaths. Um, you also mentioned factional fighting within the military. One of the things that I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I didn't look that close at the elite politics, but reading Roderick McFarker and um, Fred Tevis and other writers, uh, there were clear signs, and actually my own work with Professor Dung Guo Chang of Fudan University, there were clear signs that the factionalism was spreading into the military because they were often local military units were supporting different sides, diff different civilian sides. And Mao saw signs that the, uh, the army itself was going to lose its uh, organizational integrity. And if that happened, there, was, there would be nothing left to pull China together. So he had, he had enough sense to um, decide to end things before that, that came apart. The second you asked about current discourse on the Cultural Revolution, I really haven't focused on that, but I have some students that, uh, one, one student that's working on a, a thesis right now, um, um, studying blog posts. Uh, and there's all kinds of ways in which Mao is represented in, in China today. On one case, he's, he's represented as a um, powerful leader that promoted stability and made China strong vis-a-vis -vis foreigners. Okay, that's, that's one. And so that's kind of the nationalist take on, on Mao. And I think that's a little bit of what the current president would like to encourage people. Uh, he, he also does not want, actually, people to look. He's, he has a couple of, uh, Xi Jinping has a couple of statements, directives, saying you can't use the last, you can't contrast the, the most recent 30 years with the first 30 years. It's all together, and you created a foundation for uh, the successes of today in the first uh, in the first uh, 30 years. My own take on that, you know, if I was in, in a meeting with Xi Jinping, I'd say, well, you're right, but that's true only up to 1956. After that, things didn't go too well. Um, you didn't really create, there really, you really had to do something totally different. But the other part is more powerful, I think, is a little bit behind uh, Bo Xilai. And that is the, the image of Mao as a radical who is radically egalitarian, 
deeply opposed to the recreation of hierarchy, really upset about corruption and the abuse of privilege. Okay? And that's a little piece that Xi Jinping is, 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 is basically trying to act on, his anti-corruption campaign. But uh, I'm, I'm reading posts that this student is reproducing in his PowerPoint presentations, and they're saying, you know, we're, um, they denounced Deng Xiaoping <laughs> for creating this hybrid political dictatorship and capitalist economy that's led to enormous corruption, huge abuse of power, and so forth. So there's, there's two ways in which Mao is being um, portrayed. Uh, and he's still a very powerful symbol. But neither of those views, I think, are, are really that accurate to the historical record. Okay. Um, could we have uh, this gentleman here just wait for the microphone and again say who you are, please, and where you're from? What? Oh, well, you go ahead. You, you go ahead. Oh, it's, yeah, that's fine. It, it... As you know, Mao Secretary Hai summed up Sorry, am I... Is this audible? Uh, it's, it's not on. Not, yeah. Is it on? Or? Is it on? It doesn't seem to be doing anything. <clears throat> Thank you. As you know, Mao's secretary, Hai Rei, summed up Mao to a Harvard conference as Mao liked killing. Now, if you go back to the 1930s in the AB affair the dying before their time in the Great Leap than the Cultural Revolution. Wouldn't you say that Hai Rei is right in summing up Mao as a man who liked killing? If that's so, isn't it, isn't it really horrible that his portrait is still hanging in Tiananmen Square? Well, that's sort of the way I think about it. But I would not say that Mao liked killing. I would say, I think Stalin liked killing. I know Pol Pot liked killing. And I know the people who are rampaging through the streets of Rwanda and, and um, Bosnia, may, you could argue they liked killing because that's what their movement was all about. I think Mao, Mao's attitude, he didn't like killing, but he, he saw it as a necessary evil in a way, that you're not going to change things. People are going to die when you mobilize people. Um, and I think the aggregate statistics about you know, the percentage of people who are killed sort of, sort of bear that out. But still, 1.7, I mean, this is a moral versus a, a sociological uh, question. I mean, 1.7 million people are still 1.7 million people. Um, but I think his attitude, which he expressed many times, was that some killing was necessary. But I don't think he, he, he liked it. I've never seen... Uh, you know, biographers of historians of the Soviet Union can uh, can relay instances of Stalin personally signing death warrants for hundreds and hundreds of people. I, I've never heard of anything uh, like that about, about Mao. Didn't Mao do that in 1936? Pardon me. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. But look, he, he looks relatively good only in relation to people like Stalin and, and Pol Pot. So, um. Okay, um, I think this gentleman here um, with, with, with the grey jacket. Oh, thank you. Uh, 
Thank you very much, uh, Professor, for your lecture. C can you pl please tell us what was the significance of the Red Book, Mao's Red Book? Sorry, and could you just say who you are, please? We're, we're losing that. Just... Um, what was the significance no, no, of... No, who, who you are. Well, I'm, uh, I'm Sheikh Shuja from uh, London. Okay. <laughs> well, the, the Red Book was originally devised in the early 1960s as a way of conducting political education among People's Liberation Army soldiers. Who, and they were not particularly highly literate, but you know, it's a, basically a very simple form of, of political education. Became very popular during the early student movement in China. Um, and they, I have no idea how many copies. They must have published billions of these because they're still around everywhere in, in China, and they market them to tourists. I bought one when I was a kind of a naive college student. When I was, I, I went through my seven months of Maoism, uh, like most people of my generation did in the United States who studied China, uh, and I have, I still have several of them. Um, they went through several editions. In one edition, the one that was uh, initially circulated throughout China, had quotations from Lin Biao as well. And after Lin Biao died and was a traitor, they had to, they had to pull all those back, oh, as many as they could, and then reissue a new one where he was airbrushed out. Um, if you can find one with Lin Biao, that's a real collector's item in China. <laughs> okay, um, this um, fellow, is, is there a microphone there? Yes. Hi, uh, okay. I have a question uh, related to, it's up here. Oh, it's up here. Yeah. Uh, I have a question related to what had actually gone on behind the re-education and rehabilitation process because uh, a lot of people, officials at the time, were sent to rural area, to farm, to factory. This older generation may be difficult to be re-educated because sometimes once you have reached a certain age, to change your mind could be tough. But the current generation of leaders in China, most of them would have undergone that sort of re-education. So what would be the impact on the uh, older generation as compared to the current leadership in China? Yeah. Well, that's a hard, that's a hard question to, to answer. Um, it, it's true that m almost all um, white-collar workers and government officials were sent down to work in these... Uh, I, I once referred to them as a labor camp, and I was, I was criticized by a reader of one of my manuscripts. He said they're not actually labor camps. But there were rural camps set up for <laughs> officials to reform themselves through labor, so they weren't like penal colonies. Um, and they only did so, um, unlike the students who were sent to the countryside, they weren't sent down there permanently. They usually went for six, to, to six months to a year. There are a lot of memoirs by people uh, uh, who went through that experience that have been published, uh, mostly outside China, but sometimes inside China. Um, one of the things that younger, well, you say current leaders like Xi Jinping was also sent down to the countryside. One of the things that um, people of that generation, much younger than the officials who were sent down at the time, one, of the, the, one very common reaction that they had was their image as relatively well-off urban Chinese of the countryside and what the revolution had accomplished in the countryside was really quite uh, misleading. That Farmers in China were dirt poor. They were still barely living on the edge. Uh, and a lot of the reformers that decided to divide up the collective farms into family farms in the early, early 1980s, which was an extremely radical policy in, given a world communism at that point in time, 
uh, did so because they understood from living on collective farms how that system just didn't work. Um, so I think that's probably one of the most important uh, results. And if you, know, if you wanted to list in detail the long-run uh, counterintuitive impact of the Cultural Revolution, I think that's, that's a very important one. Okay, um, can we have this um, woman here in the third row? Um, hi, my name is Kay Tan, and I'm an entrepreneur in financial technology. Um, so my question is, do you think Mao's vision can ever um, be realized in any situation or any country, any place? Mm. You know, that's really interesting. Um, and it raises a question, well, what... What, we know what he was against, but what, what was his vision, actually? Um, there's a famous, I keep uh, forgetting his name, but there's a famous Chinese party historian who has written several, um, he became very active in the 1980s writing about Mao, Mao's radicalism. And he, I remember reading one of his essays, and he said, Mao had this very romantic vision that was ill-formed. He wanted something that was, that, it was hierarchy without inequality, unity without authoritarianism, but he did not know, he couldn't articulate exactly what that was. Um, I think little pieces of Mao's vision, right, uh, still appeal to people in China today, and that is the Mao that would not tolerate corruption and abuse of power on the part of officials. Um, I'm sure if Mao were a little piece of Mao's around today, he would make absolutely sure that all officials and their families publicly reveal all, all, of, the, all of the property and wealth that they've accumulated. This is one of the reasons why he's a very powerful, he's a very powerful uh, um, uh, symbol in China today. I don't, think, uh, I don't think any Chinese leader, and certainly the current generation of Chinese leaders, would ever anticipate, even think about mobilizing the masses to attack the system. I mean, if anything, the current leader, I, I always tell my friends in China, I say, they say, don't you think the anti-corruption campaign is like Chairman Mao? And I said, no. I said, Chairman Mao would have mobilized ordinary people to criticize the people in their work units and publicly expose them and write their own newspapers. I said, Xi Jinping reminds me of Liu Xiaoqi. This is the way Liu Xiaoqi would have done it. Liu Xiaoqi would have mobilized big bureaucratic work teams to go down and pound the hell out of people, which is what he did in the socialist education movement. And Mao said, that's not the way to do it. He said, my way to do it is to mobilize the masses. And you, Liu Xiaoqi, are the number one capitalist rotor. Liu Xiaoqi died during the Cultural Revolution. So, um, you know, I'm not sure what the vision is, but the... the uh, uh, Resentment of, of hierarchy and privilege and abuse of power and corruption is, is something that will always be there. And I think Mao will you know, be a potent symbol and people are willing to kind of forget, I think, or ignore all the other things that came along with the way he actually tried to, tried to do it. Okay, um, this gentleman here. Thank you, Chairman. Terence Bendixson, Research Fellow, University of Southampton. Um, have you given a talk of this kind in Beijing? And can you, if you have, tell us what happened and what the reaction was? And if you haven't, 
Um, how is this interpretation seen in China? Hmm. That's a great question. I have not given, I have not given this talk um, in China. I have, however, given a talk, given the talk where I estimated the number of people died uh, at Fudan University, and people sat there and listened. Uh, no one objected. Um, there was a few people in the back scribbling notes furiously. Um, and but nobody said much of anything because I was just collating information from published histories so there really wasn't much uh, they could say I was surprised they they knew I was going to talk on that subject and, and let me do it uh, there are historians at that university and uh, East China Normal University are very interested in this period uh, and while they can't publish work like this within China they publish it in Hong Kong and uh, and, and elsewhere um, and it's the second part, what would be the reaction? I, I, I wish, I, I would love to have the opportunity to find out, but this is not the way that, this is not the orthodox. I mean, I mean my view of, my view of this, is, this period is I don't understand why um, the, the government is so, considers the Cultural Revolution to be so sensitive. Given what's happened in the last 30 years, you could spin this in another way and say, look, look at how much better off you are than you were back then. I can understand why 1989 is still proscribed. That I can understand. Um, but the Cultural Revolution, my, I have a lot of students from China and I meet them at all ages and I, talk, I teach in China and talk to them about this as well. And My understanding of, of what they tell me is that in their high school and even in college textbooks, they're, they're given kind of a broad, very broad and vague overview of the Cultural Revolution, but they really don't go into detail. So, you know, the, I like to say that the overall structure of what I said is completely in line, in a broad way, with the, res the Communist Party's resolution on party history. It just goes into a lot more detail than, than that resolution did. Um, yeah, I, 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 would, I would like to give this, but I think it would <laughs> be a little tense, maybe. Now, am I missing anybody up there? Just wave vigorously for him. Um, otherwise, can we have um, this fellow here? Thank you. Uh, um, Edward, Edward Latson, no affiliation. Um, for many of us who are non-experts, we think of the Cultural Revolution in terms of the youth uh, attacking older authority figures and the idea of denunciations and forcing people to self-confess with shaving their head or humiliation. Is that just a lift from the Soviet show trials, or was there something unique about those uh, tools and methods, the young versus the old, and anything else notable or lasting uh, that we should take away from, from those specific aspects of denunciation yeah. and forcing self-confessions or self-abasement? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think, um, actually, this partly continues the discussion about whether Mao liked killing. Um, if you look at the percentage of people, one of the things I did in this, this article was look at the percentage of people who were targeted as political uh, enemies during the Cultural Revolution. It's a huge number, at least 40 million. Uh, and only 1.7 million of those people were killed. Now, if you look at the percentage of people who were targeted in the Soviet Union under Stalin, I mean, if you were targeted, they didn't just humiliate you in a show trial. You'd, you'd get a bullet in the back of the head, or you'd go to a labor camp where you would eventually, in most cases, die. Okay. Uh, the number, I, th I think Mao liked humiliation. 
he definitely thought that was important. I think he, he liked seeing these people being humiliated and losing status. This is what he wrote about in his, uh, um, his essays on the Hunan peasant movement. Um, it, you know, the, the show trials in the Soviet Union, I, I, can't, I can't remember, there was a brief period in the Soviet Union, 28, 29, where they had something they called the Cultural Revolution, which was kind of similar to this, where, where um, proletarian students uh, denounced um, teachers who were former officials or had, had foreign degrees and so forth. Um, but this was a major part of the Cultural Revolution repertoire of protest, especially in the early period before they got arms and began to fight with one another. And that related to Mao's notion that um, political change could only come about if you take people who are in positions of power and basically take away their status, take away their prestige. Um, and, you know, that was, a scary, that was a very scary process. And a lot of those people were so humiliated they committed suicide. Uh, so it was a really very powerful kind of thing. But, you know, if you look at the Red Guard movement, the Red Guards themselves debated the issue of violence. And, um, you know, uh, the people who were killed by Red Guards were beaten to death in the, in the course of these things. Uh, when you read, say, the, 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 the interwar um, fascist movements in Europe, they have guns and they're, sh- they're shooting people or they're throwing professors off of third-story uh, buildings and so forth. That was less pronounced in the early part of, of through this repertoire of humiliation, really. Okay, um, this man here, please. Um, hello, I'm Ed, I'm Edmund Rolfe, and I'm a I'm an A-level student of history. Where is he? And uh, oh, hello. Ah, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I was curious, how effective do you think the Red Guards? And many of the policies initiated by people like Madame Mao, how effective were they at destroying you know, the four olds, at destroying old culture and, refor- and reforming it to suit the new proletarian culture that you know, Mao loved? Well, they did so temporarily, but it all came back really fast after she was gone. So I guess, I guess it was basically a short-term suppression. Uh, once the Red Guard movement was over and Red Guards were sent to work in factories or sent down to the countryside, they were really, a lot of them were really hungry to find reading materials, and they would break into closed libraries and pull out books and pass them from hand to hand. So I would say um, not, uh, not, they were only temporarily successful in uh, suppressing the old culture. They were completely unsuccessful in creating anything new. Um, I remember that uh, there's an, I've forgotten now whose anecdote this is, uh, maybe Jimmy Carter or somebody was talking to Deng Xiaoping, or no, maybe Nixon was, was it, I don't remember who it was, but somebody, well, they were taken, before Mao died, they were taken to watch one of Jiang Qing's revolutionary operas, and they were trying to, be, the American was trying to be polite, and said, oh, that's very interesting, and I think it was Deng Xiaoping, he said, totally unwatchable. <laughs> Right. Um, can we have um, this lady over here, please? Thank you for your talk, Professor. Uh, I'm Varsha. I'm an ER doctor at King's College. My question is more directed at your graphs. Um, I was just curious that in 1958, 
the GDP seems to have shot up way higher than 1968, but the industrial wage was much lower. Whereas I think during the talk, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned that the industrial wage was starting to come down towards the end of 1968. But I was just juxtaposing that with 1958, and I was just wondering if you could tell me what the driving forces were at that point of time in history in 1958. You mean in, 19, in 1958? Yeah, I was <clears throat> just sort of looking at the trajectory of the graph. Oh, well, that, that, I think you're talking about the average wage. Of that was the GDP, and then I looked at the, your third graph on uh -huh. industrial wage. So right. there was a sharp contrast between the way the GDP looked in 1958 and the industrial wage, which was exactly oh, right. the opposite. What happened was they mobilized a large number of low-paid workers into the workforce, and there was a very brief um, upsurge in reported uh, product from industry. Uh, and then the economy cr crashed after 1959, and they laid off all those low-paid workers, and then the average wage went back up again. So that's, that's what that was about. The, the Great Leap Forward, I didn't even talk about, but that was a huge upheaval, huge blunder on Mao's part. Uh, and actually, that was a, a period where um, he was more or less directly responsible for starving farmers to death, more or less directly. Sorry? No, he didn't intend to do that, but he refused, he refused to admit error for fear that he would look politically bad and, and refused to let uh, other leaders uh, repair the damage and pull back from his policies until after the famine had basically worked its way through the countryside. I mean, one of the, there, if you look through the historical materials really carefully, you find things that are really quite horrific. Um, uh, China continued to export grain in 1959 and 60. Not until 1961 did they start to import grain. Uh, and the amount of grain that they exported to, usually, mainly to the Soviet Union to repay the loans that they had received, uh, would have kept, uh, demographers have looked at the tonnage and they've calculated how many calories that could have generated. Uh, it would have kept 20 million people on a subsistence diet for two years. So, you know, the, these little statistics, and why did they keep exporting grain because Mao and the other leaders refused to admit that the Great Leap Forward was a horrific failure because the Soviets were openly uh, deriding what Mao was doing. So it's kind of, and to some extent those people died to save the leader's face. Yeah. Okay, I think we've got time for just perhaps one or two questions more. Um, is there anyone up there? Why don't we just take two in a row? I think you've, you've been waiting. Just, just a second, then after that, um, this person at the front here. I, I appreciate the lecture has been about China and very interesting as well, but could you um, touch upon the ideological affiliation with the Khmer Rouge, who I think were probably the only country who tried to put a, a cultural revolution influenced by the cultural revolution mm. into action? Could yeah. you uh, establish any connection there, please, or dis distance it from it? Thank you. Okay, so just hold that one, and we'll okay. take one other. Khmer Rouge. Rouge. And, um, yep. Uh, Peter Lyons... Uh, I used to read the Peking Review many years ago. Where, where? Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Can you repeat? Yeah, if I uh, can't see you, uh, I can't understand you. <laughs> you. You haven't... I don't think you've given much uh, mention of Marx or Lenin. Mm. And I wonder whether that's because Mao didn't pay any attention to particularly Marx's teaching or, or theory about capital. 
Could yes. you comment? Yes. Okay. It's Khmer okay. Rouge. And I'll start with a. I'll, I'll start with a second. Um, I don't think Mao read a lot of Marx. I think he read um, some Lenin, but his his education in Marxism came primarily through Stalin and Stalinism, and I think that explains a lot of the things that he did. Um, uh, when he made himself, and this this is not my research. This is research by. Um, a historian at the University of Oregon who's looked very carefully at the, the creation of Mao Zedong thought in, in Yan'an. And, um, you know, up until the late 1930s, he had been leading guerrilla movements and he hadn't done any writing or reading, really. Um, he, he, he was a, a guerrilla commander in rural base areas. And then there was a long march, uh, and by the late 1930s, he really had not done much to f- furbish his uh, credentials as a Marxist thinker. And in reaction to uh, much better educated Marxists, uh, Chinese Marxists coming back from Moscow where they'd studied in universities for uh, a couple of years and who were criticizing Mao openly for having a very simplistic view of Marxism. He sat down with um, a couple of his political secretaries and studied very hard the um, history of the Soviet Union short course and several encyclopedia articles that were published and it, it gave it was it was Stalinism, high high Stalinism, and that's what he learned, uh, and that deeply influenced what he did in the 1950s. Uh, he tried to replay what Stalin did when he created a revolution from above in the 1930s, forced uh, uh, collectivization of agriculture, creation of Soviet-style collectives faster than Stalin himself wanted him to. Um, so I didn't mention much of Marx and Lenin because I don't I don't think he became uh, a communist by reading Marx and Lenin back in the 20s when he was younger. Um, the question of the Khmer Rouge, now that's, that's really interesting uh, because the Khmer Rouge ideology was directly, uh, directly influenced by the ideology of the late culture revolution. There was a campaign called the Cleansing of the Class Ranks in China that was carried out right after the revolutionary committees were established. This was when by far the largest number of people were killed in an organized campaign. The mentality of that campaign influenced uh, the Cambodian, the Cambodian Rouge, uh, but when their version of it was a, 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 a really extreme version, I mean, they they emptied, they not only went after people with education, but they emptied out all the cities, uh, and um, we're going to completely remake the society. So it's a very extreme version of Maoism that they were carrying out, and of course, the sad part is that that the. Um, for, for Chinese is that uh, uh, you know the Communist Party of China supported the Khmer Rouge despite knowing what they were doing, and afterwards the United States supported the Khmer Rouge after the Vietnamese uh, gave humanity a, a great boost and invaded Cambodia and removed the Khmer Rouge from power before they could kill even more than 25% of the population. It's one of the big black marks uh, in, in U.S. and Chinese history, international relations, that they supported that that, that group of people. On that gloomy note, I, I, fear, uh, <laughs> I fear we should uh, come to an end. Um, I mean, I think it's a very striking interpretation you've offered us. The, the things that stand out to me are, first of all, the extraordinary nature of the phenomenon itself, the fact that this is sort of running against its own regime. And then secondly, the consistently backfiring nature of, of the goals and the huge human cost that they entail. But then finally, perhaps most strikingly of all, you've argued in your overall evaluation that paradoxically this cleared the way 
and made the space for the China with all its contradictions that we see today. If you want to find out more about these arguments, I do just remind you that the book, the book is out there, um, and I think uh, Professor Walder's staying here, so if you want to you know, get an inscription, you can come up and, and do that. But before you do that, can you join me in thanking our speaker, Professor Andrew Walder? <laughs>